Welcome to the Save What You Love podcast. I'm your host, Mark Titus. Today I get to sit down with Joel Reynolds. Joel is the Western Director for the NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council, and has been a champion for Bristol Bay for the last 20 years, right in the midst of all of the efforts through the coalition with the United Tribes of Bristol Bay, Salmon State, and all the others who have been working tirelessly to protect this sacred place for future generations. Joel and I also connected on a level as a filmmaker. He is a producer on a film called Sonic Sea. It came out in 2017. It's a powerful documentary about what's going on under the surface of our ocean's waters um, and the noise that's literally killing whales. This is a fascinating conversation with a great man. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, if you're looking for some way to take action for Bristol Bay, head on over to avaswild.com forward slash action or just avaswild.com and click the action button once you're there. That's the word save spelled backwards wild.com and tell the EPA that it is time to exercise their authority right now using the 404C Clean Water Act and veto the pebble mine once and for all. Thanks for listening this week. I hope you enjoy this episode and we'll see you down the trail. Joel Reynolds, welcome. Where are you joining us from today? Good morning, Mark. I'm uh, in Santa Monica this morning. Outstanding. What's it doing down there today? It's raining cats and dogs up here in Seattle. It's all it's overcast. We have a big marine layer. We haven't seen the sun in about four days, so it's unusual. Well, um, this is usual, uh, though, uh, as we know, things are changing uh, rapidly. Um, in terms of our West Coast climate, and we're, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But um, I would love to know, and I know all of us here listening to the show would love to know uh, your story. How did you come into this work that you do? Um, I grew up in the probably the smoggiest city in the entire country, a place called Riverside, California. It's about 60 miles east of Los Angeles, all the air pollution generated in the South Coast Basin ends up there. And uh, growing up, it was it was a tough place to be, certainly in the summer. I remember not being able to take a deep breath at the end of the day without it feeling like somebody was sticking a knife in my lungs. So that, that uh, really elevated my understanding of the environment from a young age. Uh, I went to college. I majored in music and political science, um, but eventually um, got interested in in uh, the law. Not because I'm so fascinated by legal process. I'm not. I'm very ideological. It's a tool that I have always found effective to vindicate interests that I'm sympathetic with, and I've done that now for about forty years. Um, when I got out of law school, I didn't know 
exactly what kind of law I wanted to practice. I just knew which side of the table I wanted to be on. And early on, I, I was asked to begin doing work on environmental cases. And the more I did that, the more people wanted me to do it. Uh, I've done a wide range of litigation over the years uh, from um, uh, wildlife to in, uh, environmental justice, to transportation, to toxics at all levels of the federal courts and uh, state courts in California. So I've been with NRDC since 1990. It's uh, over 30 years now and uh, doing primarily litigation, but in recent years, focusing on, on large campaigns like the one we're going to talk about this morning. Absolutely. So as, as we know, uh, you know, there's a lot of, lot of glory in all that, <laughs> uh, but it's so much work to get up every day and keep going forward on things that are decidedly difficult to continue to roll up the hill. What keeps you going every day? That's a, a great question. Um, I've often said that if you can't, uh, can't take a loss every now and then, you can't do this kind of work. It's, uh, it's very tough. Um, the deck is stacked against um, the good guys, uh, stacked against communities. It's stacked against, in particular, low-income communities, indigenous populations, uh, like the communities of Bristol Bay. But um, what's kept me going, I would say, every single day for all these decades is that um, I really like what I do. I, my uh, focus is fueled by outrage. I get angry at things. Um, uh, I, I'm motivated by things that I love. And uh, that's always been the case. So I, I think... I can fairly say that uh, there's never been one day in all these decades that I haven't been able to go to work and do things that I agree with. And that, that means a great deal to me. We're going to get into Bristol Bay. Uh, and anybody that's familiar with this show knows we talk about it frequently. Uh, anybody familiar with my work knows we talk about it frequently. But I'm also interested in some of the other projects that you've championed. You know the power of story as a producer on a film called Sonic Sea. It's a really powerful film, and it's about human noise pummeling our oceans. How did that project come to be, and what was that experience like working on that film? Uh, well, that's a long story, <laughs> which you could probably do a separate podcast on. But <laughs> back in the early 1990s, um, I did a lawsuit against the U.S. Navy focusing on a five-year program of underwater explosives testing off the Southern California coast, literally in the Channel Islands, one of the richest areas of the waters of the continental United States in terms of biological resources. They did it without an environmental impact statement. Um, it was the wrong place. And we tried to settle it with the Navy because that's a tough adversary in any context, including the federal courts, but that was unsuccessful. So we filed a lawsuit, got an injunction blocking the whole program, uh, which was called Ship Shock, it involved dropping 10,000 pound explosives off of these warships to test their electrical systems and simulate war games before they were deployed um, to, the, to the Far East. 
And, uh, but there's 35 species of, of marine mammals in this area from blue whales all the way down to harbor porpoises. And, uh, you know, it seemed like a very, very questionable place to do that kind of work. Anyway, we won that case. Um, in the, in the uh, process, I learned about uh, some top secret Navy programs using very intense sound sonar systems that are used to detect submarines uh, around the globe. And the more I got into this, the more I realized that it was entirely unregulated. It was unpermitted. There was no environmental review of any kind. And there were a lot of consequences because these sonar systems are capable of generating noise as loud as human, na uh, human beings can generate noise. Mm. And it's been documented now um, many, many times that mass strandings of whales were the result of testing and training with these systems in places or at times of year when it was the wrong thing to do. And I have litigated against the U.S. Navy over and over again, uh, um, I would say very successfully. And uh, one of the products of this work was a movie called Sonic Sea. And it's uh, it's, we sold it to Discovery Channel. It was 60 minutes long. It won uh, two Emmys, including Outstanding Nature Documentary in 2017. It's a, it's a very good piece of work describing uh, the history of that litigation and the broader problem of anthropogenic noise and the, and the oceans. You don't shy away from entangling with uh large opponents. Uh, the Na U.S. Navy certainly is uh, about as big as it gets, but as we know, um, at least on its outside, and it's, it's, I, I, in its ideal, a giant mining company would be a formidable foe as well. Um, and uh, for our listeners who are joining us who, who don't know about the proposed pebble mine, can you give us a thumbnail sketch on what that project is and what's at stake in Bristol Bay? So the Pebble Mine is a proposed copper and gold uh, open pit mine um, that would be sited literally at the headwaters of the world's greatest wild salmon fishery in southwest Alaska. That's the Bristol Bay Wild Salmon Fishery. It is the literally the Fort Knox of salmon on earth. Um, this summer alone, it generated 66 million fish, far beyond any other um, salmon fishery in the world. It generates 50% of all the world's sockeye salmon. And this is an area that a consortium of mining companies that included Anglo-American Rio Tinto Mitsubishi Corporation and a small Canadian uh, exploration company called Northern Dynasty Minerals. This this partnership proposed to build this uh, in the headwaters um, over the opposition of uh, over 80% of the people who lived in the Bristol Bay region, uh, tribal communities, uh, fishermen and women uh, whose entire uh, way of life is based on uh, that salmon ecosystem. The Bristol Bay uh, watershed is one of the the uh, most perfectly functioning ecosystems on earth, naturally, socially, culturally, and economically. The fishery generates $2.2 billion a year in revenue, tens of thousands of jobs. And, and as I said, the tribes don't want it. They don't need it. They don't want it. And they fought it relentlessly 
for a very long time. And yet this is the area that this partnership uh, has proposed uh, to build this mine. Now I say partnership, it's not a partnership anymore. All the big mining companies have walked away. Anglo-American, Rio Tinto and Mitsubishi, the only company left is a small Canadian company called Northern Dynasty Minerals that doesn't have the assets to proceed, but is hoping uh, somehow uh, to get legal authority to build it and then attract some uh, some other large mining company that hasn't been paying attention to buy them out and take it over and enrich their shareholders. So if you've, if you've seen The Breach uh, uh, and The Wild, the, the two documentaries that I've done and, and the uh, phenomenal red gold that came before those two um, folks out there, you know uh, kind of what's going on with, with Bristol Bay here. Uh, it is always changing. It's always in flux. And Joel, can you tell us where we are with this abomination, uh, as it were, uh, in Bristol Bay at this moment and um, what, what we need to do moving forward here in the months to come? Sure. Um, simple answer is we're in a pretty good place today compared to where we've been over the past several decades. In fact, the last year has been the most remarkable period of progress that one ever could have imagined in uh, fighting this, this project. Um, in August, or I would say late July 2020, uh, the U.S. Army Corps of en Engineers approved an environmental impact statement for the project that made it appear, um, as everyone expected, that the Trump administration would issue a federal permit for this project. Um, but uh, as a result of an amazing uh, series of events last fall, by the time we got to Thanksgiving, everything had turned around. Hmm. And the day before Thanksgiving, the Army Corps actually denied the permit the company. The company was was stunned. I mean, they they never foresaw that under the Trump administration, one of the most anti-environmental um, presidencies in U.S. history, that they would not get the permit. And in fact, I think they felt they had the assurances from the leadership in the administration that they were going to get it. But they didn't. And so um, that has provided a temporary respite in uh, the, the progress of the pebble mine. And um, another thing that happened last fall is uh, Trump wasn't reelected. He's been replaced now by, by Joe Biden, who uh, last fall also came out publicly and said, I'm against the pebble mine. I'm, I, I don't think the Bristol Bay watershed is any place for, for large scale mining. And uh, so he appointed Michael Regan to be administrator of the EPA. Um, Mr. Regan has been very clear in his public statements that he believes Bristol Bay is an area that needs to be protected. Um, he has assured the tribes that, that he intends to do precisely that. And, uh, and the tribes have formally petitioned um, the EPA to restart a process begun under the Obama administration using uh, very rarely used authority of the agency called Section 404C of the Clean Water Act uh, to protect um, the entire region. It's an authority that isn't dependent on a permit application or denying an application 
as I described with the Army Corps of Engineers, which, which can receive many, many applications over many years. And, and there's no assurance that the Army Corps of Engineers is gonna, gonna say no, as it did to Pebble last fall. But the EPA has the authority to prohibit or restrict any project or activity that threatens uh, protected water resources under that statute. So the tribes of Bristol Bay have asked EPA to invoke that authority. Over the last two months, uh, in uh, formal legal proceedings, the agency has agreed to do just that. And in fact, last Friday, a court order ordered that the um, efforts by the Trump administration to, to uh, promote the project and prevent 404C authority from being used um, uh, were, were rescinded. And she remanded uh, the entire process back to the agency to reinstate the 404C process that had been derailed by the Trump administration. And that process is now uh, set to move forward. The tribes have asked the agency to complete it before the next fishing season starts in June of 2022. We believe the agency uh, can meet that schedule and we're determined to do everything possible to, to help them um, do exactly that. This does sound really good. And, um, I agree. It feels like we're in the best place we've been in. Uh, I've been involved in this fight for um, going on 12 years. I know you've been involved for much longer. Um, those who have been involved have this, uh, I think, a knock on wood kind of sense of, hey, we've we've seen this before. We had eight years under Obama to get this done. And, and then we had a political shift and and things went sideways. Um, it looks pretty good, it, it, you know, coming into, uh, 2022 and provided, you know, provided the EPA does its job and, uh, follows through and exercises its authority under the 404C and it gets a veto. What happens then? What, where, where do we go from there? Uh, cause it, it, my understanding is that that still doesn't completely protect this region in perpetuity. Or am I wrong about that? So um, we take it one step at a time, and we try not to get ahead of ourselves. The 404C authority has been used by EPA only about a dozen times in the in the more than 40-year history of the Clean Water Act. So um, it's, well, actually 50 years now. And, and uh, so for the agency to take that action with respect to Bristol Bay is a very significant thing. The reason the agency hasn't used it very often is because it's difficult to, to use. It's a, it's a high threshold. And, uh, but we believe that the situation uh, in Bristol Bay that's been posed by the Pebble Mine is precisely the kind of circumstance where it should be used. It's not the Pebble Mine. It'll be some other mine from some other mining company. There's a whole bunch of claims that have been staked up there. And uh, the holders of those claims have been watching the process for the Pebble Mine because once that one goes in, if it goes in, all the infrastructure that's associated with, with building and operating a mine is then in place in that very remote, uh, pristine area. I mean, roads, pipelines, fossil fuel supplies, um, major port, all these things would be associated with that that mine. But if we can stop Pebble, and if we can get EPA to uh, 
uh, finalize a determination of safeguards to present to prevent large-scale mining in the area, uh, that is going to be um, a major step towards lasting protection for the region. Is it possible that some future administration that was determined on, on uh, environmental destruction of this national treasure um, could overturn it? It's, it is possible. And so we also believe that legislative action uh, is necessary. Senator Murkowski, the senior senator from Alaska, has made very clear that uh, it's her intention to propose litigation that would provide permanent protection for that above and beyond uh, what 404C could provide. And the, uh, the people of Bristol Bay, the communities of Bristol Bay, the tribes, the fishermen, uh, have expressed their support and intend to cooperate with that, that effort. So we're hopeful that, that that's gonna move forward as well. One of the interesting things is, you know, there, there are a lot of uh, different points of view in Bristol Bay about a lot of things, but uh, the one issue where, where people are unified um, to an exceptional degree and have been for a long time is on the need to protect the fishery because it is the salmon are the are our life in Bristol Bay. It isn't just about food. It's about uh, social cohesion. It's about culture. It's their history, and uh, it supports not only the people of Bristol Bay but all the all the wildlife in the region. And it's it's impossible to overstate how important um, protection of that ecosystem is, and that means stopping projects like the Pebble Mine. And it's, it's been an, an enormous privilege for me and for my colleague, Taryn Kiko Heimer and all of us at NRDC to be able to support uh, the tribes because what has been going on up there with the, with the um, unwillingness of these mining companies simply to walk away is the 21st century example of what's been happening to indigenous people uh, in this country for centuries. The tribes have been, been uh, uh, had their habitat disappropriated and been driven from their, their ancestral lands uh, going back to the beginnings of this country. And people think that's all history. Well, it's not. It's what's been happening up in Bristol Bay uh, for the last 15 to 20 years. We're now on the verge of uh, preventing it. And that's very exciting. And it's a direct result of the, of the cohesion of the people who live there, the determination that they have shown against all odds. Um, and uh, we believe they're going to prevail. And that's, that's exciting. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more on all fronts. Uh, it is a constant inspiration for me getting up every day and thinking of the people in region who have been fighting this every day for the last 30 years. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you've been involved in this fight longer than I have. And, and it, it, this is like decades worth of work here. What have you gleaned that uh, has been the biggest struggle in this fight um, over, over all this time that you faced? Um. Well, that's a tough question because there are a lot of different sides to this this kind of a, a battle. I mean, if you think about how formidable 
the um, the partnership of mining companies was. Those are those are some of the largest mining companies on earth, and the mining industry is you know that mining is is something that as a society we definitely need. We rely on minerals, uh, but the industry has a long history of um, steamrolling community concerns and and local interests. And uh, the law in this country is set up to enable that. Honestly, they you know the 1872 mining law is is a giveaway of our public lands, and that needs to be fixed. But that's another story. Um, the manifestation of that in Bristol Bay has been that these mining companies uh, were able to to come in and and almost certainly succeed in gouging a massive open pit mine in, at the headwaters of a national treasure it's this is a, this is a story that if you if you actually tell people what's proposed and what the location is i don't care what their political ideology is they will tell you that it's crazy and it is. It's it's not only like crazy. It's immoral and it's illegal, and it's wrong at every single level. I mean, one of the really interesting stories in the history of this is what happened last fall, when, as I mentioned, it appeared that the project was on the verge of actually getting a permit, and at that point in time, a number of uh, very uh, conservative, very very wealthy, very well connected. Uh, people began to take notice that maybe this was the time they needed to get involved to do something. And these are people that were very close to the Trump White House. In fact, one of them was Donald Trump Jr. himself. And uh, he, at some point in, in early August, went on social media and said, you know, I don't think this is a good idea. And I don't think my father is going to support it. And then we were able to engage at the complete opposite end of the political spectrum, Jane Fonda, who did not have a history with this issue. But when she was told about it, she said, yeah, I want to help. And so she then went on social media and said, I've never thought I'd agree with Donald Trump Jr. about anything, but I agree with him about this. That's right. <laughs> and then Fox News picked it up and they ran a headline. Don Jr., Jane Fonda, agree mine should be stopped. I mean, it, it's... It's hilarious. And then this made it all the way into the Oval Office, and I think it made an impression on, on uh, the president um, and who began to, to notice it. And one thing led to another, and the Army Corps of Engineers was at that point essentially released from the, the political stranglehold that had been under for several years uh, that was dictated by the mining company, and they began to pay attention to the science. And their scientists didn't like this project, and they knew that it was going to do um, irreversible harm to this ecosystem. So it's it's one of the funny uh, stories about this. Um, but I'm, I apologize. I don't think I gave you a very direct answer to your question. And if you want me to try again, I will. That's okay. I, that's a fantastic story, and I, I'm going to elaborate on it. Actually, uh, we took some heat from our friends on the left uh, who, you know, when we included the section um, about Donald Trump Jr. in the wild with our friend Nancy Morris Lyon, who guided uh, him and his uh, son. And, you know, at the 
at the end of this, it was a calculated risk to, to include that. And we, we pondered that for a long time on whether we were going to include that part of the story or not. But ultimately, uh, like including my own story of um, recovery in this, in this film, we decided it was the right thing to do because it was the truth. And lo and behold, there, is, there was and uh, is a thread, like you said, with um, the conservative base and folks that are involved in the outdoors and fishing and hunting. Um, as you mentioned, Tucker Carlson ran a seven-minute piece with Johnny Morris, the CEO of Bass Pro Shops, on his program. Uh, who would have ever seen that coming? I mean, that was as unthinkable as Jane Fonda and Donald Trump Jr. getting along. So at least on that issue. Um, but that being said, that this, this is why Bristol Bay, I think, is such a unique issue, is it has brought formerly disparate groups like commercial fishermen, sport fishermen, tribes, uh, conservatives, uh, liberal environmentalists together on this one thing. And God knows we are desperately lacking any kind of cohesion in this country. Do you think Bristol Bay's fight can be a model for the challenges we face, especially in this tsunami of, of, of challenges that we're facing with, with the climate crisis? Uh, well, I'd like to think so. You know, it's, if, if, if you look at this situation um, at its origins, you've got um, what the mining industry believes is a mother load of minerals in the, that are buried in the Bristol Bay watershed. And the Bristol Bay watershed is in the state of Alaska, which is as development friendly as a, a state as we have in this, this country. It's, very, it's a very red state historically. And uh, you know, the, even the governor of Alaska today is, is, uh, is almost on the, the, he's not on the payroll, but he's a puppet for Pebble. That's, there's no question about it. He has done everything that he possibly could to help uh, uh, the Pebble partnership succeed. So they, this consortium of companies comes in and they feel like it's theirs for the taking because that's the way the system is set up in this country. But what they found instead was the people who live there absolutely don't want it, don't need it, and they're not going to put up with it. And they have fought this thing relentlessly, and they've been supported by an exceptional coalition of, of, of uh, non-traditional stakeholders in that effort. And they have, uh, knock on wood, stop this project for good. We're not there yet. Uh, we have a lot of work to do yet. There's still an administrative process before EPA that needs to go forward. We know that the companies, if EPA actually does finalize a 404C uh, determination, the company is going to sue the agency and, and try to invalidate it. We're all going to go to court to support the agency if that happens. Um, Senator Murkowski, as I said, is considering legislation. So there are, there's a lot of uh, ground to cover still, but we're uh, in a very good position and we're feeling optimistic that um, the, there is a unique political alignment in place to make this happen. Now, what does that mean for climate change? Um, it means that when people are sufficiently motivated when they recognize that what 
they care about, what they need, what their children need, um, is at risk, they can come together and they can do the right thing. We, we have quite a long way to go, I'm afraid to say, on, on climate change, but we have been making progress. I think today uh, that issue for the first time has really uh, reached the top of the political agenda for the, the, uh, the White House. Uh, it's never, we've never had a president who has elevated climate change to the extent that the Biden administration has. And unfortunately, um, it's kind of a one-sided effort at this point. We need all sides to come together. And I think that the political polarization that you have referred to uh, is just an enormous challenge. I don't think any of us knows where it's going to come out. And I know that it isn't just an environmental issue. It, it's a threat to the foundation of our entire democracy. So there's there's been an effort um, to protect voting rights uh, through Congress. I noticed Senator, Senator Murkowski has signed on to that effort. Whether that's going to uh, get through Congress or not um, still remains to be seen. But I do think the story of the Pebble Mine at its most uh, basic is an indication of the fact that that uh, people of all sides, regardless of political ideology, regardless of economic uh, circumstances and their uh, cultural history can come together and do the right thing, even against enormous odds and prevail. Here, here. Uh, we're gonna start winding this down here for today, but um, one other little thought that came into my head and has uh, over the last couple of months. So I spent, I went up to Bristol Bay four times this last summer uh, and fall, um, which was great duty, of course. But I know you've spent time up there. Anybody that does spend time up there, you can't help but notice the broad tundra, the, the massive scope of the landscape. And if you haven't been there, uh, for those listening, Ed, I mean, it's it's like a giant peat bog. It's um, it's alive. It's uh, it's growing. It's and I don't have the data in front of me, and I'm not sure if that data is uh, quantified or can be quantified yet. But that's just another massive reason to keep Bristol Bay intact as the carbon sink that it is, with the incredible amount of um, biological diversity there. Just a little. Yeah. I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, science has told us that if we if we intend to um, stop climate change, we have to protect our lands and our oceans. We need to protect these global landscapes, like the 40,000 40, square mile wetland that uh, is the Bristol Bay watershed. You can't develop it. It's a carbon sink, and we we need it. So um, there are a lot of different dimensions, uh, a lot of reasons to support protection of that ecosystem. And, and you've named uh, just one more. But I just want to say before we end, I want to thank you for all the amazing work, Mark, that you have done to elevate this issue, to bring in divergent voices, to tell your own story. Um, it's, you know, uh, your films are, are absolutely uh, tremendous. And they've played a big role in telling people what's going on up there and engaging them in a way that, that supports the tribes, which that's something all of us have tried to do and need to continue doing. 
Thank you, my friend. And um, and as we talked about earlier, you know, when people when people of any stripe, politically or otherwise, socially in this country, um, learn what's at stake there. Rick Halford says it best. They, you know, it, it becomes part of the national consciousness, and folks do just are apoplectic about allowing something like that to happen in in this national treasure. All right, I have one last question for you, and then we're going to do our quick little bonus round, and then I'll turn you loose for this time. But uh, I'd love to to revisit this as we continue along in this fight. Um, here's the last question: If we have the law, we have stories, we have action. You're involved in all three of those things. For those of us listening who aren't a super smart, powerful lawyer engaged in all this, but desperately want to do something, what advice do you have for us? A um, couple things. One is get involved. I think you know support support one of the, the the groups, whichever one you want. Support the tribe. Support the fishermen. Support the conservation community. Get involved and enable the work that they do. Two, when there are opportunities for public comment, and there will be uh, an opportunity coming up soon once the EPA administrative process on 404C uh, gets going again, participate in that, whether it's in person through public hearings or it's in writing through uh, written testimony. And third, let your elected representatives know how you feel about this and that you want them to get involved. This is a no-brainer. And uh, this is something that whichever side of the aisle you're on, as you and I have discussed for the last half hour, um, that doesn't make any difference. This is uh, a region that needs to be protected. These are communities that that need to be supported. And uh, your elected representatives uh, need to hear from you. A lot of great places to go. NRDC.org is one of them. Uh, We've also got, we've curated all of the action steps that folks can take at avaswild.com as well. You just go there and click the the action tab um, and uh, you can do all those things. Okay, here's our little bonus round. Let's just say, let's just paint a picture here and say your, your house were in the path of a flooding river, which in Southern California is not out of the question. I'm knocking on wood. We're certainly not wishing this, but of course you would get out your loved ones, your pets, those those living, beautiful loves of your life. But is there one physical thing, if you could only take one thing that you would take with you? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's an easy one. I have a, I have a violin. And uh, whenever I think about um, having to evacuate in a hurry, I always think about where is that violin? It's been, it's been with me my whole life. As I said, I majored in music in college. My father was a conductor. Um, music is at the heart of my family and my, my entire life, uh, and that's what I would—that's what I would take with me. Joel, I did not know that about you. I didn't know you played the violin. <laughs> that's amazing. I want to—I want to hear you sometime. Um, that's awesome. So, how about let's let's little metaphysical here. Two things that make you you. Two traits about you. Two spiritual or so, uh, emotional traits. If you could only grab two, what are those two things that you would hold on to? Uh, I, I have I have a lot of uh, passion for doing the right thing. I feel like life on Earth, our time on Earth is short. 
And I think it makes a huge difference what we do with it. That's what I was taught from my parents. And uh, I'm one of six kids and all of us picked it up. So, uh, and I, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be married to uh, somebody who is, is uh, uh, the best example of that that I know. And um, so to me, that's, that's really important. What's the word that I would want to have on my uh, tombstone? If there was just one word, I guess it would, it would be uh, kind. Mm. And that's, that's, uh, that's something that we all need to think about, particularly when it's so difficult to get along with people today. So. True that, my brother. Uh, we need more Joels. Um, thank you for taking the time today. Um, we will definitely revisit this conversation. If folks want to check out uh, what's going on at NRDC, what's the best way for them to track you down and, and to follow along with the work that you do? Uh, NRDC.org is a good way to do it. I'm based in Santa Monica, and um, you know we're always happy to hear from people who are interested in what we're doing. Joel Reynolds, you are leading the charge. You've been a huge mentor to me. I appreciate you. Thank you for the time today, and we'll see you down the trail. Thanks, Mark. Enjoyed it. Anytime. Thank you. Bye-bye. How do you say what you love? How do you say what you love? Thank you for listening to Say What You Love. If you like what you're hearing, you can help keep these conversations coming your way by giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can check out photos and links from this episode at avaswild.com. While there, you can join our growing community by subscribing to our newsletter. You'll get exclusive offers on wild salmon shipped to your door and notifications about upcoming guests and more great content on the way. That's at avaswild.com. That's the word save spelled backwards, wild.com. This episode was produced by Tyler White and edited by Patrick Troll. Original music was created by Whiskey Class. This podcast is a collaboration between Ava's Wild Stories and Salmon Nation and was recorded on the homelands of the Duwamish people. We'd like to recognize these lands and waters and their significance for the peoples who lived and continue to live in this region, whose practices and spiritualities were and are tied to the land and the water, and whose lives continue to enrich and develop in relationship to the land waters, and other inhabitants today.